Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, you're listening to episode 177, and I'm talking with Scott Fobble. This is Scott's third time on the show, so make sure you go check out his previous episodes if you haven't yet. He was on last year before the New York City Marathon, and then we had him on again after the New York City Marathon when his book came out, Inside a Marathon. Scott runs for NAZ Elite, Hoka Aneane, and he runs under coach Ben Rosario. He recently placed seventh at the Boston Marathon in a time of 2.09. Huge PR for him. First American to finish that race. In New York in the fall, he also finished seventh place. And I was so pumped to see how well he ran in Boston. He is known for being a really good, sharp racer, and it sounds like he ran that race really smart. In this episode, you hear all about the race, Scott's training, what it looked like in the buildup, who he trained with, how he trained, and what his strategies were. He is super pumped for the trials, as am I, and I cannot wait to see what he does. Hey, if you are going to be in Indianapolis for the One America 500 Festival Mini Marathon, I want to invite you to the Michelob Ultra after party that's happening at Athletic Annex in their brand new location. This party is going to be happening at 3 p.m., 1300 East 86th Street, Suite 29A. This is in Nora, right by the Whole Foods and Target. Really exciting. We're going to have fun giveaways, yummy food, and of course, cold Michelob Ultra. So come run the race. Also, if you haven't signed up yet, you can use the code ANOTHER. 19 to save $7. So come on and run the race and then come to the after party with us Saturday, May 4th at 3 p.m., 3 to 5. And even if you're not running the mini, you can still come to the party. All right. I'd love to connect with you guys on social media outside of this podcast. You can find me on Instagram, lindsayhine626. You can find me on Twitter at lindsayhine and I'm on Facebook. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine where we have a group as well. The group is where all the fun conversations are going down. I'd love to have you join us there. You can also find Scott on social media. He's a really fun follow on Instagram. He is S Fobs. So S F A U B S. Find him on Instagram. And then on Twitter, he is Scott Fobs. All right, everybody, enjoy this conversation with Scott Fobble. We're talking to Scott Fobble today, seventh place place finisher at the Boston Marathon 209 marathoner. Yep. Okay. So lots of questions. All right. Um, first of all, how many burritos have you had since the race? Oh, I don't even know if that number is calculable. (laughs) Um, what did you have right after you, like, what did you eat after you finished the race? Um, well, I was selected for, uh, for drug testing. So nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't, uh, I didn't eat for a little while. I was drinking a lot of water and, um, and Sprite, uh, cause I, I knew I could get that down and I had some goo and a water ball in my bag. So I ate that or I drank that. Um, I think the first thing I like finally ate and got down was, uh, one of those, like a flatbread pizza from the, the hotel bar and restaurant. Um, I met my parents and my agent down there once I'd, um, peed in the cup and all <laughs> filled out the paperwork. So yeah, I think it was probably a pizza. Isn't that weird how, I don't know about you, but when I finish a marathon, like I think I'm going to want all the food, but really all I want is um, like salty chips and it's the next day that you want to eat all the things. Yeah, definitely. No, I totally agree. Like uh, 
I, I like, I just didn't, food didn't like sound that good to me right off the bat. Um, I mean, I, I was just, I had such like a stomach ache from drinking all that water and then I kind of just wanted to drink beer. Um, <laughs> Did you? Yeah, I had, I had plenty of beers. Um, and then, uh, yeah. And then all of a sudden, like the next day when I woke up, I mean, I went through just, I mean, probably 10,000 calories. Oh, like sure. that's, yeah, <laughs> the next day. So, um, no, I totally hear you on that one. Yeah. I think it takes like a couple days and and then you get back to like, okay, I'm going to eat like a normal human again. Um, yeah. so I, you know, the one thing about running the race is that, I don't get to watch it on TV. So like, it's really fun to watch if you can stream Boston or New York or what any of the big races. Um, and I could have seen, you know, you with the pack for, and even leading the race. But, uh, a lot of us listen, people listening today aren't going to have had that opportunity because they were running. So can you, can we do a breakdown of the race a little bit and kind of give us a little bit of a play by play? Yeah, definitely. Um, Let's start so at the start. I, yeah, let's start at the start. <laughs> so we're in Hopkinton, uh, and the gun goes off, and the start's pretty steep downhill, so I kind of just let my legs go, and I knew I was fit enough to... I didn't have to, like, stick to a very specific pace. I could kind of let my legs dictate how I was feeling, or how fast I was going to run, and um, I knew I had a little bit of wiggle room there, so... I didn't really mean to, but I kind of just found myself up front, like pretty early on. And, uh, uh, that's just where I felt most comfortable. I felt good running my own rhythm. I didn't really like sticking in the pack all that much and, um, letting other people kind of dictate the pace. So, uh, found some, some, found some room and just kind of ran my own, my own pace. And, uh, occasionally there were surges and I would slip to the back of the group or whatever. But for the first 10 K I was, up near the front for most of it. Um, at about 10 K there was a kind of a big split in the group and myself and some of the other Americans, uh, Dathan and Jared and Shadrach were all, um, kind of caught in the second group. And, uh, we just sort of kept running even kept running four fifty fives or so and caught back up by about 15 K and we sort of went back to the front again and um, then around 11 miles or so, uh, Jared kind of made a little bit of a move and, um, sort of got out to 10 or 15 seconds at one point. And at first the majority of our lead group kind of let him go. And then they closed it down really, really fast. And, uh, so I kind of got left out behind again cause I wasn't really able to surge as quickly as those guys were. So I just, um, got back into my rhythm. I found myself with Ritz and we worked well together and, uh, I came through the half in one Oh four forty, which was like simultaneously really cool because, uh, I knew I was having an amazing day. Mm. Did you feel um, really good at the halfway point? Yeah, I'd felt pretty smooth. I, I mean, right about half, I went through a little bit of a rough patch, but, um, up to that point, like for the first 11 miles, I felt so easy. Um, and so relaxed. So I so, felt like I hadn't made any mistakes, but when, it was also say, a little bit terrifying. Okay. So when you say rough patch, tell us what that feels like and how long, like how long you felt. I know it's like the marathon is such a mental thing and it's like you come in and out of these feelings. So like, how long did you feel like that? Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I guess maybe rough patch isn't like quite the right word, but it was like, 
it felt so good. I mean, just effortless for mm-hmm. the first uh, first 10 or 11 miles. And then when we hit 11 and there was that surge and I was caught kind of in the back of it and was sort of on my own again, um, I just felt kind of heavy. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I didn't, my legs didn't have that pop and I wasn't maybe as smooth. And um, I didn't feel like I could just kind of do my own thing and everything would be okay. I kind of needed Ritz's help and Shadrach Biwat's help as well for a little while. And, um, uh, and yeah, I just didn't, I mean, I just didn't feel like quite as poppy and fresh. And I think like I'd felt so good earlier that maybe I kind of like over exaggerated in my mind how important that or how bad I actually felt. I probably felt fine, but, Mm -hmm. um, just not quite as good as earlier. Um, so yeah, I went through the half in 104.40, knew I was having a good day, but I was also like, man, like that's 90 seconds faster than I've ever come <laughs> through a half, like the halfway mark. I was like, part of me was kind of like, well, maybe this isn't going to go well. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, it's like you're halfway, that's thir- last 13 miles, there's so much that can go down. Yeah, and especially in Boston where the yeah. second half is definitely harder, Um so I was kind of like, well, I mean, I hope this works out. Uh, I'm feeling pretty good and I'm just going to roll with it. But, um, yeah, I mean, the possibility that maybe, maybe I'd kind of gone a little bit too quick was still in my, in my mind. So, yeah. So I ended up catching back up to the group. Um, I had a really good, there's that long downhill from 15 to 16, right before you start the hills. And, um, that hill about kills me. It's, it's yeah. like, it hurts my back. <laughs> like it's so significant. It's insane. It's steep and it's long too. Yeah, um, it's like never ending. Which I mean, I guess I'd rather it be going down, but still. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of not sold out, but I I pushed pretty hard on that hill, and mm-hmm. I mean, I think I was probably in the low four forties and maybe even in the four thirties on that hill. What is pushing so, like? Because I know, like, when you're going downhill, you're kind of like for me, you're like just like I'm letting my body kind of go. But are you like letting your body go and like also? pushing forward you know because the momentum thing is an interesting thing yeah. going on what is I that like re- yeah I try to be real smooth going down the hills and we practiced uh running downhill smooth and fast a bunch over this training segment mm-hmm. um so I kind of tried to tap into that lean forward a little bit mm-hmm. get over your toes and um still keep your arms moving forward uh I think people have a tendency to just kind of let their arms sit stand by their sides mm-hmm. when they're going downhill but um, you should really kind of keep them in the same motion going forward to kind of keep propelling yourself down the hill. So, um, yeah, I kind of, I pushed that mile a little bit and caught back into the group, right. As we started going up the first, the first of the heartbreak Hills. And, mm-hmm. uh, once I made contact with the group again at a little past 16, it was kind of that same thing as at the start where like, I just felt better um, when I was able, when I was running my own rhythm and when I, uh, was up in the front, like when I kind of tucked into the back of the group, I was feeling real clunky and kind of inefficient cause, um, there just wasn't as much space and they were running a little bit slower and, uh, I just wanted to do my own thing and feel good. So I moved back to the front of the group again at about 16 and a half or 17, um, and held it there until we started the uh, until you get to that firehouse and you make that right turn and then it, it's pretty steep um right after that turn and what mile is the, that that's like 17 and a half okay yeah and so at 17 and a half 
I was in the lead and then um, there were some surges on the uphills, the uphill sections. But then in that period between the hills where uh, it's kind of flat or even like downhill at certain points, the group would kind of like let off the gas and I would go back to the front and push because I didn't want to be um, slowing down and speeding up and slowing down and Mm -hmm. speeding up. Like I felt really good in that one gear. And that's kind of the gear that I wanted to work. You kind of kept it in that gear going up and down. Yeah. Up and yeah, just that same effort kind Uh of. uh Uh, And then that's kind of what happened on the next three hills. Like I would, I would be in the front as the hill started and then I would slip to the back of the group and then they would kind of let off the gas and I would go back to the front. And um, all of a sudden we got over Heartbreak Hill and there were only, there were only eight of us in the lead group left and i mean there were probably 20 when we turned on to when we turned at the firehouse at 17 so um yeah so i you know we'd done some damage and gotten the group down and uh from 21 to 22 i i I went back to the front again and just kind of was looking around at these guys and i knew that a race where we were going to be surging and slowing down and surging and slowing down wasn't going to be good for me that wasn't like something I necessarily felt comfortable doing. So I kind of got to 21 and was like, you know, I'm just going to time trial this. I'm just going to run as hard as I can for the next five miles. And, uh, so from 21 to 22, that meant I was in the front. And then right when we turned left at Cleveland circle, um, all seven of them really surged and really picked up the pace and, uh, I got dropped, but I was still having a really good day. And so I was kind of just focusing on myself and focusing on finding that rhythm and pushing as hard as I could and um, like trying to stay positive and trying to stay coherent and present. And uh, I ended up pulling back one other guy at um, at about 25 or maybe 40 K. And then you get to the sit go sign and there's that's one mile to go. And there's a, there was a clock there and I saw two Oh four ten. And mm-hmm. I was like, holy, holy shit, I could break, <laughs> I could break 209 today. And so I pushed really hard, as hard as I could, basically, from the sit-go sign to the, um, to that underpass. And then when I went up that underpass, I mean, I, it was just, I just uh, kind of hit a wall there. And then you turn right on Hereford and mm-hmm. left on Boylston. And I was just trying to keep, keep moving forward and just put one foot in front of the other and just keep pressing as hard as I could. And, um, I kept holding out hope that maybe I was going to be able to go under, um, 209 until about like 80 meters left. It was clear I wasn't going to. And, um, so that point I wasn't duking it out with anybody and I wasn't right on the edge of going under a full minute. So, uh, I kind of sat up and I I got to, I waved to the crowd and Mm -hmm. I got to soak it in a little bit and pointed to the right. And then I pointed to the left and, I mean, I didn't even know if the crowd could get any louder, but they seemingly did. And it was amazing. Um, That's so cool. Yeah. And then as I got across the line, I just kind of put my hands to my face because I, I mean, I literally didn't believe that I had run (laughs) 209.09. And uh, I mean, it was just, it was just so um, overwhelming kind of. And I, I, my parents were there and they came over to the finishing area and I gave them a big hug and. Um, I saw my agent like a little bit after that and I gave him a big hug and, um, you know, not long after that it was, I saw Ben and I saw Scott Smith and, uh, it was just a really, um, special experience to kind of 
just share all of that, that whole day with all those people. Yeah. Do your parents, obviously they follow your career closely, but did they know the significance of running 209? Like they understood how big of a PR that was and on such a tough course. Yeah. They knew, they knew that I'd had a day and maybe not quite like the full context immediately, but Uh pretty soon after that, we learned that I was the like 11th that made me the 11th fastest American marathoner ever. Really? Um, Yeah. And so that was like, that's something that they could totally understand. Yeah. They could grasp that. Yeah. Um, Oh, wow. Where was Ben? Was he in the stands? No. So he, I saw him actually at 16 and a half. Oh, really? Yeah. And then he and Scott Smith got on the tee and took it out to Cleveland Circle. Mm. And then, uh, so they saw me there. I didn't see them at Cleveland Circle because it's loud there. Yeah. Um, so they saw me there and then they hustled back over to the finishing area, but I'm not sure if they, if they made it in time, but they were like watching on their, on the NBC sports app on their phone. Oh man. Well then if, yeah. it's, if you, so I knew it was loud at Cleveland circle, but I didn't know when you guys came through, if it was as loud, because I know some spectators straggle on out to find their people that might be starting in like wave three, you know? Um, but I was going to ask you if you heard a lone guy on the left-hand side of the road <laughs> down into Cleveland circle, cause it was my husband and he, he got a really good video of you coming through and he was kind of like sort of by himself, but you probably, I mean, lots. I very well, I very well might've, you might've um, heard him. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that's awesome. So I heard Ben interviewed after the race and he was kind of talking about how obviously time, you know, like the time is amazing, but that's not what you were focused on before the race. Uh, so can you kind of talk about like, what were your strategies going into the race? Like what were your, I know your dream big goals were whatever happens as long as I lay it all out there. Like I know that that's how you roll, but like, what was the strategy? Um, I mean, the strategy was kind of just, we were hoping that I was fit enough to just run up front and run with the the top guys and, um, just race as well as we could, you know, um, that's something I'm pretty good at is like making tough decisions and, mm. um, getting competitive and being really tough at the end when I'm around other people. Um, and that was sort of the, the plan was just run with the top guys, give myself every opportunity to finish as high as possible. And, um, pretty much all of my PRs have come from situations where they've come as a byproduct of when I've got not worried about the time and then just raced. Mm. Um, and that happened again. Um, you know, I wasn't really, I didn't really know exactly what the splits that I was seeing meant along the course, mm-hmm. um, other than the halfway, obviously. Um, but, uh, cause the only way that I was like keeping track of the time was I would like I would look down at my polar watch every mile and I would see just my only measure was how far under five minute pace were we? Okay. And right from the gun we were kind of taking time out of five minute pace pretty fast. Yeah. Um what's five minute pace? What is that? Two ten? I think it's like two eleven low. Okay. Um but I chose five minute pace because it's easy to calculate and I was like one hundred percent sure that if the weather cooperated I could run up five minute pace. That was easy for me. That felt like that felt like something I could definitely do. And so I was just like, okay, keep track of five minute pace, just measure how far under you are. And that will give you kind of a barrier or like a measurement of, um, how, whether you're still in the zone, you should be. Um, cause if all of a sudden I saw that I was, you know, 
90 seconds under five minute pace or two minutes under five minute pace. It's kind of like, like early in the race. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, okay, maybe, maybe this isn't, maybe I'm getting sucked along a little too quick here. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's, I want to make sure I'm correct on this before I say you negative split the race, right? Yeah. By a little bit. By like a couple seconds. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That's really hard to do in Boston. Like, yeah, it's just because you can only go so slow on the downhills at the beginning and you're going to work on the uphills no matter what. And there's still like significant downhills on the second half. I mean, the last 5k, other than that bridge you were talking about where you kind of, uh, bonked for a quick second before turning yeah. onto Hereford, <laughs> like it's, you're, you're, fl- you're pretty much like down downhill. So, but the, all of those uphills are in that middle to late section. So like, how do you do that? I mean, it's just like negative splitting in Boston is tough. Yeah. I mean, we were really well prepared. Ben did an amazing job of, of, uh, sort of riding the training and finding ways to, to get ready for that. Like we'd run a lot of Hills, a ton of really, really good long runs. And, um, I'd gotten just really efficient at, um, running on kind of like the Boston terrain. Yeah. And I think that helped a lot. You know, we got to the hills and I could kind of, I still had my legs under me. And the last five miles, um, they're pretty fast. Yeah. You know, it, but the problem, most people don't run that well over the last five miles because their their legs aren't under them anymore because mm-hmm. they've they've gone so hard on the first 16 miles. Did you ever feel like that? Because I, I know that feeling that you're talking about with the legs, like where your legs are just like, oh, my gosh, I can't pick up my leg another step. Um, so you kind of just like trudge along. So did you ever have that heavy feeling in your legs? What did the legs feel like in the last five miles? Yeah, I mean, the last five miles, I didn't feel great. Um, <laughs> I was hurting pretty bad. I mean, it wasn't necessarily like um, like really, really heavy. It just felt like, like I was so maxed out, I mm-hmm. guess. Like I was riding that line so it was such a fine line that I was pushing, um, that there was just kind of like, like all the alarm bells in my body were kind of going off, especially for the last like three and a half miles. So you've proved to everybody, even the common runner that's, you know, trying to run a three thirty or three fifteen or two fifty or whatever, that you can PR in Boston, that you can negative split in Boston. Um, I feel like the problem people run into is just like you're saying, like, uh, what you did right was the right training. So on those long training runs, like, did you go run like basically 12 miles downhill and then work a little bit uphills? And like, what did some of those long runs feel like? It's hard to like, I don't know, mentally be like, I'm going to go run downhill for 10 miles. Cause you almost feel like, even though you're not, you almost feel like you're cheating a little bit because it should be harder, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, I think that's the, the biggest thing I would, suggest to like the average person is everyone worries about like like, oh man I've got to be able to handle the Newton Hills and yes you do you shouldn't neglect uphills but um the Newton Hills by themselves like they're not that hard Mm -hmm. you get a break after every single one totally um what I think why I think people struggle is because they haven't practiced running downhill and not just practice running downhill to callous the legs but um they haven't practiced running downhill smoothly being efficient. So, um, I think that would be like the same way you would do maybe strides or intervals where you're shorter intervals, where you're, all you're doing is focusing on being a smooth and efficient through the, through the interval. Um, 
you should run down hills and focus on being as smooth as possible. And, uh, yeah. And that's kind of what we, what we did. We did a lot of long runs where I was running a long distance on hilly terrain and then running hard at the end. So one of our best, one of our long runs that was really good was, uh, did 20 miles where it was like a hilly dirt road that was net downhill. And so I just ran one way, um, down just so that I was getting that down and, um, kind of found my way over to a neighborhood at 20 miles. And then I just ran like four miles of marathon effort, but I did four miles of marathon effort after I'd already done 20 miles. Um, so 20 miles and 20 hard and hilly miles. So my legs were beat up. Um, I really, you know, you have to practice fueling on over when you're going that long and then you kind of have to like get yourself focused and, and try to find your rhythm again at, um, for four miles at the end of, after you've already run for over two hours. Okay. So marathon pace miles, those four miles. So did you do those at like four fifty five or four fifty? And then what were the 20 average paced? Yeah. So the 20 I did in like two eleven or two ten. Okay. So six thirty pace. So for a long run, oh, that's, okay. you know, fine. Yeah. Um, does that feel good? Like cardio wise, but you're like, you're working, but you're not work like pushing. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's okay. like a, like a, a long run where I didn't get aggressive at the end. Okay. That would be about what I would run for 20 miles. So okay. 20 miles at six thirty pace average. Um, and then, uh, the four miles were, it was like, got out a little bit too fast. So it was like four fifty, then four fifty five. 457 and then 447 because I pushed a little bit on the last mile. So my 24th mile of the day was 447. Did you then cool down um, two miles or did you finish it at 24? No, I cooled up at down 2.2 miles. Oh, you did I the never whole had, thing. Yeah, I never added, added distance to a cool down, but if I'm going to be running 26, <laughs> I might as well go 26.2. Oh, that's awesome. Was Coach Ben out there with you on that run, like on the bike or car? Yeah, he drove along and I had a... Um, I had a, a teammate out there as well. So, uh, who was this? So yeah, I wasn't totally alone. Um, Ian Carter, he's oh, been kind of newer to the group, but he's been training with us. Oh, we'll have to get Ian on. I'll have another. Yeah. <laughs> I like Definitely. to make my way through the NAS athletes. Speaking of that, by the way, I have, um, an interview stocked up with Grace and your roommate. Oh, great. Awesome. Yeah. I interviewed her a few weeks ago and I'm, well, I have to bump her because I have to get you out post Boston, but I'm holding on to it. it, it there's nothing okay. time sensitive on hers though. All right. Well, I'll, I'll let her know that you're bumping her. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Be like, sorry, you got bumped by me. I got seventh place at the Boston Marathon. So that's why. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, um, I was going to ask you that, though. Okay. First of all, though, two questions is, did Ian do that whole run with you or did he just jump in for parts of it? Uh, He did. He did the vast majority of it. Um, He couldn't quite hang on the like four mile tempo, but Mm. he did his own four mile tempo. And then he had done 18 miles leading up to that. Okay, so he did. So it was, yeah, it was pretty much together. Big workout. Um, Mm -hmm. So my other question then was, who did you do the majority of your training with? Uh, I did a lot of workouts with Ian. He was able to do a lot of like longer sessions uh, with me, or at least like part of longer sessions. Um, But a lot of it was alone as well, um, which is kind of the first time I've been doing that. Uh, Boston is so specific, and the marathon itself is such a specific event. Uh, that if you're not really preparing to run a marathon, it's not really a good, um, 
they're not those marathon workouts aren't always applicable to somebody getting ready for like a half marathon even or a a 10k um so yeah a lot of my stuff was alone this time around is that weird that you were the only nat were you the only nas person doing boston yeah this year i was um which is a little strange uh but you know i mean it's no big deal i've gone to a lot of races where i'm the only naz elite person yeah yeah Hey, everybody. I want to take a quick break and thank a supporter of this podcast. Do we have any dog lovers in the house? Uh, we've had our dog cadence for like 11, 11 years. Yeah, I was I was thinking that was too long, but no, she's we've probably had her 11 years now. But the New York Roadrunners, who are best known for organizing the TCS New York City Marathon, which is the world's largest, they put on these really cool virtual races all year and this one coming up is going to be really fun it is called the nyrr virtual dog jog it's happening between may 1st and 12th so you can sign up for the race you register it's free and race with your dog so the cool thing is that window may 1st through 12th you can do the race anytime in that window Uh, you just have to register and then sync up your strava and it shows up and you can run fast you can run slow You can dog jog it up however fast your dog wants to run. Anyway, I'm going to do the race with Cadence. Oh, man, it's going to be funny to see her running a 5K because she hasn't. I haven't taken her on a run in so long. And I'd love to have you join us. So go to nyrr.org slash virtual racing and sign up. And then connect with me on Strava, too. I'm Lindsay Hine over there. And don't you worry, Scott Fobble, who is on this episode, he is also a dog person. He has a dog, and I'm working on convincing him to sign up as well. So make sure you're following him on Strava, by the way. He right now holds a record in the marathon from his Boston Marathon time. So that's really cool, and he's really fun to follow. You know the NAZ Elite people are really open about sharing their workouts and what they're doing. So it's pretty cool to follow him over on Strava. All right, Scott, I hope you're going to do this dog jog with us. Again, that's nyrr.org slash virtual racing. I'll be in Indiana. You'll be wherever you're at. But that's the cool thing about these virtual races. So many connections and so many ways to connect with the greater running community all over the world. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Scott Fobble. So tell me this. Why did you choose Boston? Uh, I mean, I chose Boston after New York last year because it was another opportunity to go to a a hard course and and just run, just race as well as I could and and try to um, try to hang in the front group. Um, you know, I could have gone to a race like, say, London or Rotterdam, um, but I'm not gonna run in the front group of London ever, probably, because they're I mean they're gonna go out in 102 flat. Yeah. Um. So I guess I could be farther back, but it sounds more fun to me to uh, to put myself in races where I can be up front and make race-like decisions. And it's not just a time trial. Yeah. And that's because it's on a more difficult course, like the hills. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And there's no rabbits. Oh, um, right, right, right. Yeah. That's really the biggest thing, probably. There's no rabbits and it's on a hard course. And um, the field is, is so good that some of those top guys who can run in the 205s and 206s, they don't necessarily want to push super, super early and kind of be the the unofficial rabbit and let all those other guys kind of suck come along with them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and there's, you know, there's surging and there's other tactics involved, which I think play a little bit more to my strengths than um, getting on a super flat, fast course and letting it rip, you know. 
Yeah, this might be a silly question, but I'm sure other people listening are wondering, are Boston and New York the only majors that don't have rabbits to Chicago? Uh, Chicago did this past year, but they, they've they been on and off in terms of when they've had rabbits and when they haven't. So um, yes uh, and no, I guess. Tell me, do you, tell me how you feel about that. Do you just, would you prefer no race had rabbits? No, I think it's, it's definitely good that some do. Okay. I think it's a cool thing for the sport that um, every, a few times a year, like there can be a storyline about how fast are these guys going to run? Like, are they going to be able to run the world record? I think that keeps people interested mm-hmm. um, because at this point, the world record is so good that you're not going to get it without rabbits. Um, yeah. And uh, I think it's good for the sport to keep pushing the boundaries of how fast people can run. The thing I will say about about rabbits versus no rabbits is on the women's side, if you're a world marathon major, you need to start the women first, like Boston and New York do. Yeah. Because um, when the women start with the men, they probably get like a little bit of advantage because there are so many guys that they can use and they can work off of and they maybe run faster than if there were rabbits up front. Um, and they had started earlier. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, but I mean, the product is unwatchable, um, because they're surrounded by these guys and we don't get to see these really good athletes duke it out. And that's way cooler to me. Yeah. And I think it's way cooler in general. And it's a way better thing for women's sports as well. When, um, uh, when you get to see these people shine on center stage and be the center of the attraction, as opposed to be buried in a group of of two eighteen guys yeah. were great. Two eighteen guys are great, but they're not. They're not they're winning. Two eighteen women, <laughs> yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I totally agree with that, and that's yeah. I love Boston. I love how the women start early in Boston, and people always ask me that too. Just as people that aren't fans of the sport or aren't runners, they're like, "Why do the women start first? I'm like, "Why don't? They, why wouldn't they start first? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, oh, that's so I think it's good to have a balance, but I just think you got to put the women out first, even if their time they're not going to be running quite as fast. Mm-hmm. That's so much be- such a better product, and it's so much cooler to watch women crush out there than have them buried in the men's field. Oh, totally, yeah, for sure. Um, so, okay, you you play seventh at both New York and um, Boston. I have to tell you, I was laughing at your. Um, I was just kind of like watching post race interviews, prepping for this, and your post race. I don't know who was interviewing you after New York, but they were asking you about. Uh, uh, being the second American in New York. And I don't know, you said something like, I mean, I know I'm good. And I just like cracking yeah. up, but you were, you were basically talking about how like you want to be good on a world stage. Like it wasn't even about being the second American. It was about competing with like the best of the best at a really tough race. Can you talk on that a little bit? And also, by the way, it just like, it just, that interview was like, Oh, that's your personality. And it was hilarious. But <laughs> Go on. Yeah, particularly before or after New York, I think a lot of people were like surprised. That felt like a breakthrough to them in mm-hmm. some ways. And that I wasn't surprised. Yeah. <laughs> it was like I was almost incredulous. It was like, dude, like I'm pretty good at this. Like <laughs> this isn't it's not like I. Yeah, I don't know. This was it seemed like logical that I would finish that well. Um, I agree. Yeah. So I guess that was kind of where that that came from. But, um, yeah, I think 
being the top American is it's a huge honor and it's always great to be the best person from your country at one of these ra- huge races. But um, ultimately, I, I kind of think sometimes people like hold that up as like a consolation prize um, or somehow feel like being the top American is um, is different or like it kind of feels like winning the losers bracket. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Because but Americans like, don't usually win the gold, you mean? Yeah, yeah, but I don't necessarily think, like, I didn't think about just being the top American. I thought about racing as well as I could against everybody. Like, I don't care where somebody is from. Right. They could be from Eritrea or China or Japan or from Australia or from Kenya or from Ethiopia or from Uganda. Um, If you're on the start line, that kind of stuff doesn't really matter, and financially maybe there are certain causes where being the top person from your country gets you a little bit of money here and there but Mm. um but i think americans should be trying to win these races and uh and that's more important to me i guess by keeping my goals at well i want to be top five in the whole race i don't care about being top five american um keeping my goals really high is important to me yeah you know we we saw we've seen this like surge of um really kick-ass American women distance runners, like just like the, the depth of the field and, you know, and I just wonder if by having someone like you having these breakthroughs, like the 209 seventh place in Boston and New York, um, speaking this kind of like speaking this into maybe the men's field. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know, but I'm just wondering, like, are we going to see, a resurgence on the men's side as well or will we just say surgeons i don't know yeah i i think the uh there's been sort of a narrative where people have said oh well american men aren't as good as american women on the marathon and to a certain extent that's true but um in a more i think that american men have been good for many years like mm-hmm. uh you know, it wasn't that long ago when uh, Meb got an Olympic medal or won Boston or won and won New York. And we've had guys like Ritz who have, you know, been top five and at um, major marathons. And, you know, Abdi was third place at New York not that long ago. And Shadrach Biwat has been fourth and third at um, Boston now. And now Jared and I have come up and we've had top 10 performances at both. Um, top 10 performances at both New York and Boston. So, uh, while I definitely don't think that, um, American men are quite as competitive on a world stage as, as women, uh, American women, um, we have been competitive. We've probably been the, you know, in the top five most competitive countries in the world. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that maybe people have decided to neglect in order to, because it doesn't necessarily fit their narrative of how they think it's going without, but they're not really thinking critically about how well people have been running. They, all they do is look at times and decide that Mm. the times that Americans are running aren't as good as the times Kenyans are running. And then they, they write their story based on that as opposed to taking into account where people are running these times and how well Americans are placing and that kind of thing. You know, I feel, it seems like there's a lot of, two 12ers out there though. And 
Do you think breaking 210, which is something that not a lot of American men have actually done, um, when you look at the history of it, um, do you think that puts you, I don't know, on a different playing field is the right term, but like, do you think that, what does it do for your confidence and does it put you on another level, I guess? Um, I mean, Lindsay, I was awful confident on April 14th, you know, so, uh, uh, no, I don't think it necessarily changes anything for me. Um, we, we got to this perspective and I say we, by I mean, like, um, myself and Ben Rosario and my teammates, uh, we've gotten to the places that we've gotten by trusting our process and, um, being engaged in the process of trying to get better every single day. And, uh, not in, we haven't really worried about what kind of the outside implications of our performances have been. We've just been about trying to create the best product we could create and then do the very best we could on race day and everything else has come from that. So, uh, I am really committed to trying to stick to that. Actually, like Ben and I just the other day, just yesterday, we're talking and, one thing I said to him over the phone, I said, look, I think the biggest mistake we could make is change something. Like I got here because we did, because we followed our process and made good decisions. And, um, we didn't push the envelope or anything like that when we didn't have to. Um, and now I don't think that this should change anything. Um, because it wouldn't have changed anything if I had run really poorly and something bad had happened. It's not like we would have all of a sudden lost faith in me as a marathoner. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think we just need to keep following the natural progression of things and um, trusting the way we do things um, as opposed to looking at this performance and redefining our expectations or the way we see ourselves. That's such a good point because, yeah, like something could have gone wrong. There are so many variables in a marathon. For sure. Had that happened, that doesn't discredit the athlete that you are. Yeah, um, talk about Jared Ward. I mean, it's so funny that you guys like flip flopped, you know, but in New York and then Boston, you seventh and eighth, eighth se- or no, well, I guess he was sixth in New York, wasn't he? Yep. And mm-hmm. you were seventh and then you were seventh yeah. in Boston and he was eighth in Boston or was he eighth or ninth? He was, he eighth. was eighth. Okay. Yeah. Um, can you talk about running next to a guy like that and what your relationship is like? I feel like I saw a fun picture or video or something of you two. Yeah. Um, Jared is an amazing dude. I mean, anyone who's ever met him knows that he's uh, one of the kindest, most genuine human beings on the planet. Um, and Jared and I go, we go way back. Uh, we were racing each other circa 2011 when we were both in college because we were in the same conference. Oh, so I we've he raced was each older other. Yeah, he is. Uh, he's older than than me, but he's um, since he went to BYU and since he's uh, LDS. Um, he took a two year mission and okay. I think he's only one year older than me in terms of his graduating class. Okay. Um, a couple years older than me in terms of his actual life. But, um, sure. but yeah, we've been duking it out for a long time and in college, usually he got the better of me and, Ugh. uh, now we're, we're pretty much even, I guess, in terms of what we've been able to accomplish the last two years. And I mean, obviously he ran in the Olympics and was sixth and that's world class and, yeah. Uh, and that's amazing. It couldn't happen to a, a nicer guy. And, uh, he's such a strong athlete and he's somebody that I, I know every time Jared goes to the line, like he's out there 
to run really well. He's not there to, he's ready, he's prepared. And, um, yeah, and that's great. I love competitors like that. I love guys who, um, are going to show up to every single star line, uh, no, like, and just give it their all, um, and be prepared and be ready to go and be really solid. So, um, Jared's the man, he's probably one of my better, best friends on the circuit outside of our, our team. And, uh, you know, I love, I love talking to Jared. I love seeing him at races. I've gotten to know his wife a little bit and I got to know his kid or got to meet his kids a few times. Oh yeah, and, He's got four, doesn't he? Uh, I think so. Yeah. And they've got a four. really little one, like yeah. a couple, like maybe 11 weeks or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a really little one. So, um, super nice guy. I can't speak highly enough about Jared. Man, and I think people forget, like, he got sixth place at the freaking Olympics. That's legit. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Oh, man. Tell us what you think about the uh, new Olympic standard, 211.30. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't I don't really know what that, <laughs> like, I the thing that I think is will be interesting, and I think a lot of people have probably jumped the gun on, um, on making up their minds about what they think about this is like the USATF still hasn't um, announced how they're going to pick the team because you don't actually need to run to 1130. You can also make it based on your world rankings. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So it's like a two track thing. They set these really, really fast standards for every event, but then they also said if you accumulate enough points through racing um, and your ranking is high enough, that can be a criteria through which you qualify for the Olympics. Um, and the issue that it seems like is going to happen is the USATF has said, but then kind of walked back, but then they haven't really put anything new forward. Um, they've kind of said like, uh, well, we're only going to take the time standards. Mm -hmm. We're not going to follow the, we're not going to worry about the rankings and, it's not great when one governing body is saying like, well, we're going to give you two ways to qualify and then a different governing body is saying, but we're only going to recognize one way because the other way is too complicated. Um, so I think there's still a lot of developments to come from that. Uh, and I don't think that any of us, anybody, including the USATF, knows what the selection criteria is going to be yet. Okay. And um, my only hope through all this is that a the trials still matter mm -hmm. i really would like it if the trials were a big deal and there are certain selection criteria that they could put out that make the trials really less important and um b it's clearly communicated to both the athletes and the fans soon so that people can make their plans for the fall and they can do what they need to do to get put themselves in a position to make the team because as you know selfishly it would be great if we got to the line in atlanta and there were only three or four of us with the standard and as long as i finished i got to go to the olympics and that would be amazing but as like a fan of the sport and yeah. somebody who wants to like earn it and like i really want it to be a battle and i want it to be important um i would love as many people as possible going to the start line in atlanta with a realistic shot to make the olympic team on both the men's and the women's side yeah, I mean, because it's like, on the one hand, running that 209 in Boston, you're like, okay, well, I got my standard. Because you didn't have it before. No, I didn't. Well, nobody had it before because the 
um, the window was wasn't open. Okay. Like the window just opened. See, and like that's what seems months. tricky to me. Yeah, that's what seems tricky to out. me. You have one yeah. bad spring race, and then it's like, okay, mm-hmm. well, I got to do it in the fall, or I have to do it on the trials, which is like an extremely difficult course. Yeah, and I mean, I so, I mean, to make matters more confusing, um, my two hundred nine at Boston actually doesn't count for the standard. <gasps> it doesn't. Oh, because it's net downhill. It's net downhill and it's point to point, but, <sighs> um, but they have a caveat where if you get top 10 at a world marathon okay. major, like then you get the standard as well. Really? Even so if you would have ran a 212? Yeah. Even if you would have run a 212. Okay. Interesting. So see, like, here's the thing. That's, I did not that, know that caveat and I've like definitely, you know, paid attention. <laughs> yeah. Both the USATF and the IAAF is really shooting themselves in the foot by like, by making these stupid, complicated, convoluted procedures. Um, when like, I mean, you follow the sport and like, um, and they haven't communicated this well to anyone. Yeah. Um, let alone like, can you imagine what the casual viewer is going to think when they turn into tune into the Olympic trials and are like, what you got to score points yeah, How you score points in running, you know, that's so dumb. I just want it to be simple for everybody. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting point that you make because technically like I would be considered like media in the running world. Like there yeah. aren't that many running podcasts out there and you would think that they would want to like put a press release or something out to people like me. Right. Yeah. Or just in some way communicate right. what's going on in some sort of clear and coherent manner. So true. Wow. Oh my goodness. Uh, so you're probably not have made this decision or aren't sharing it yet, but do you think you'll run a fall marathon? Yeah, no, I'm not. I don't think so. Okay. Um, you know, we've got, you know, we have the standard. I yeah. did New York yeah. and I did Boston and it would be a lot to do. If I was to do one in the fall, that would be like four marathons in about 16 months or so. Yeah. Um, which is just a little bit much, uh, in my mind. So, um, yeah, no, we're, we're gonna, um, we're going to probably take the fall off. I mean, I guess that could change, but I'm really excited to, uh, really excited to do some faster stuff, focus on the half marathon, focus on maybe running a really fast 10 mile, um, going back to really cool races like Falmouth and maybe going to beach to beacon and, um, just doing, doing fun races that are fast and a little bit shorter. Yeah. I heard Ben say that he was going to have you race a lot. I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to race a ton. You love to race. I do. I do. That's the fun part. Yeah. Do you picture yourself at the trials duking it out with Galen? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I picture winning the trials yeah. sometimes, you know. Is that I don't who care you if picture, Galen's on the star line. Who do you picture duking it out with? Oh, I don't care. I don't <laughs> care who's there. I don't care if it's Galen. I don't care if it's Ritz or Shadrach or Jared or um, somebody who makes their marathon debut. Like... I would like to, or Scott, my teammate, Scott Smith, like mm-hmm. I would, I want to win. I want to race as hard as I can at the trials and whoever's there is there. You want to win the trials. And that is what people need to, um, take from this interview. Like when I asked you the question about, does the 209 put you on a different level? Does it give you more confidence? And your response was Lindsay, I was confident on April 14th. And so yeah. like what I take from that, when you, when you said that, what my mind went to was like, oh yeah, like you, whoever you are listening, whatever race you are gearing up to run, like 
you should be confident regardless of what your PR is if you're trained well, regardless of what the person next to you on the start line's PR is because this is your training and it doesn't matter if your PR is a 330 and you're going for a 320 if you're fit for a 320. Yeah, for sure. No, definitely. I love that. All right. Who does your uh, cool video promos you've been? This is like kind of a newer thing I noticed on Instagram. Like, A, where does the music come from? Because it's awesome. It like makes me want (laughs) to dance. And B, who does them? Well, I don't know where the music comes from. Um, I'm not like that involved in the editing process of them, but uh, I um, I work with a with a company called Rabbit Wolf Creative that is uh, run and headed up by one of my good friends from college who also happens to live in Flagstaff. Okay. So, um, you know, I mean, uh, this has been documented many times, but um, our group at Northern Arizona Elite puts a huge premium on sharing the journey obviously and sharing uh content and working with fans and i really feel like uh like videos are something that not a lot of other people are doing and it's um was kind of a fun and unique thing that i could do with a good friend um and I, i pay him obviously it's his job but uh you know i it's a cool way to cool and fun way to put out good content and um disseminate information and uh identify with fans and do something unique well he's good at it like it made me want to run fast you know like yeah, he's the man he's doing he's really gotten very very good at it over the last few years yeah so i assume he has like some stock music music account or something that he uses but i like the like hip-hop vibe that he goes for and then yeah. it's like the shots of you like racing with this pack of guys it just like it makes you feel like you're actually running to that music in the video and like how fun would that be and like how badass you know it just I don't know it gives a really cool vibe and it's a motivator too yeah yeah uh he's done really well um he's got really good at Steven has done really good um really gotten really good at videos and um editing and he's very creative and uh well I need to hire him next yeah absolutely I just need to live in Flagstaff I guess Definitely, or hire him or to come out to my races. Out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, tell me about the post, and we're almost done. But tell me about the post when you said "scared money can't win," and I think it's one of his videos, and it's like "pump up to Boston." It's like a week out, and what does that mean? "Scared money can't win." Be confident. Yeah. Uh, well, "scared money can't win" is a line from um, one of, if not my my favorite books called. It's called "All the Pretty Horses," and it's written by Cormac McCarthy and. Um, he's got this line where the main character is talking to his, his father in a cafe and his father says, uh, scared money can't win and a worried man can't love. Mm. And, uh, uh, it's also tattooed on my back. So, you know, I've got quite a few scared money can't win, um, strands out there. Uh, maybe I should be a little more original and maybe even come up with something on my own. But, um, I really like the quote. I think it kind of just means like, uh, if you really want something good to happen, then you have to be all in Mm. and you have to kind of be okay with the fact that maybe it's not going to work and maybe it's going to really suck afterwards. Um, because in the context of the book, it's kind of a quote that the main character uses to justify like, um, taking a pretty wild and kind of like reckless shot at, saving a relationship that fate has kind of gotten in the way with and uh it means like 
the character is uh, okay with the fact that like he might leave this situation with a really, really broken heart. But um, if you're worried about those consequences, if you're worried about the fact that you might, things might go poorly, you're never going to put yourself in a position where you, something great might happen. Boom. That yeah. is <laughs> awesome. You know, I think I had it in my notes the first time I talked to you to ask you about that back tattoo and I it fell off or I forgot or we didn't get there. But now I know because I've wondered yeah. that because I know I've seen that a picture with that tattoo. I No, you don't need a new thing. That's your thing. That's my thing now. It's Thank so you, Cormac good. McCarthy. Yeah, he's a he's a very well-known New York Times bestselling author for a reason. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> did you guys do a lot of book stuff in Boston? Uh, yeah, we did two events. It How, was super cool. They good? Yeah. Yeah, they were great. They were great. It's um, it's very very flattering that people are interested enough in what we're doing to, um, to come to a store or like come to a talk of some sort and um, meet us and and buy the book. Like that's that kind of blows my mind. So um, it uh, yeah, it went really well. It was yeah. super cool. And you're proving some consistency here, New York to yeah. Boston. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, I, I'm kind of kicking myself. I should have came to one of those events. I got kind of got on the one-track mindset of just doing what I needed to do in Boston and then forgot about what everybody else was up to. Yeah, for sure. No, I don't blame you at all. Um, you got one of those events. We did a, We did that podcast. You what? Oh, what? You did a podcast? We did that We did that podcast, you, me, and Ben, um, when the book came out. This is true. We did a post-book Yeah, book you got podcast. your own personal event. This is true. I got my own two-on-one event. Yeah. Okay, I know, yeah. but I'm just saying, like, I should meet, we've talked enough, I should meet you and Ben in person sometime. Yeah, I'm sure we'll run into each other at, at one of the races some of these, one of these days. You know what? I actually, I think I'm going to put it on my agenda, and maybe I don't know... Do the men and women, this is a dumb question, do you guys run the marathon different days and for the trials? You know, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think we do. No, I, I'm pretty sure it's all February 29th. And it's all, like, do you start, like, the women start 30 minutes ahead? Do you know? You or know, I, I okay. don't. I okay. assume, I kind of assume it's like that. Interesting. All right. Well, I, um... I do plan, I think, to do something there. So I'm going to be, you know what I'll do is, because I was, I watched these post-race interviews that you guys give after big races and like someone got one from Ben at the Sheridan or wherever you guys stayed. And I was like, I want to do a 10 minute post-race interview. Like, I feel like I could come up with some really good spot, quite on spot questions. Um, so I'll just like be one of the press people putting a mic in your face when you cross the cool. finish line and you win the trials. I can't wait. <laughs> um, all right, Scott. Well, congratulations. Everybody's Thank excited you. for you. I know all my listeners who've been following along since we first had you on. Um, it's like they're even more pumped because they've gotten to hear from you before. And like we all know that you've been, um, you know, like you said, told that guy in New York, like, I'm really good at this. Like we all know that that was happening too. And so hopefully everybody else who hasn't been following along is following along now and seeing seeing what great potential you have yeah thank you so much Lindsay. i appreciate you saying that all right well we'll talk soon we'll do this again sounds good great okay. thanks bye yep bye all right everybody thanks so much for tuning in today thank you scott for coming on the show and sharing your story loved hearing from you loved learning about what you were thinking during the race and how it all went down and i can't wait to do it again I think that you're just going to be a continued returning guest on the show. No fear, friends. This is a two, 
episode day. So guess what? There's a Jordan Hesse episode as well. She placed third at the Boston Marathon. And that is going to pop up next in your feed today. Episode 178. Have a great day. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. And as always, I'll see you next Friday.